0: Hello, I'm David Mosscrop Welcome to Open to Debate. The pandemic isn't over. Someday it will be, but we aren't there yet. We are, however, at a critical juncture, a fork in the road at which we can choose another path forward. Today we ought to be devoting much of our time and attention to an analysis of how we can rebuild or remake our social, political, and economic institutions in ways that serve us more effectively, sustainably, and equitably. Rebuilding or remaking those institutions requires us to think critically about what has worked in the past, for whom, and what might work better in the future. It requires us to ask basic questions and to be willing to follow where they lead. It requires us to imagine something different. And so we ask. How should we put ourselves back together post-pandemic? My guest on this episode of Open to Debate, making her record-setting fourth appearance, is Amanda Watson, feminist theorist, lecturer at Simon Fraser University, and author of The Jungling Mother, Coming Undone in the Age of Anxiety. All right, let's start with a note. Both of us have construction noise intermittent <laughs> in the background for different reasons yours is, is mysterious mine is uh, renovations because i'm bourgeois now uh mm-hmm. so just a note to folks that there may be some hammering some light buzz sawing it's hard to say but that's just part of the uh the ambiance. so let's start with uh, a check-in as we record the quadrilogy the, the fourth one uh, and the second worst diehard. Uh, how are you doing?
1: You know, I know that you answer this, that, that you start with this question. And so I was like, you know, who's asking? Like, is it Dave, Dave? Or is it podcast Dave? It's the phony one.
0: It's, no, it's <laughs> both. It's it's both. You can say whatever you'd like, but just know that this is public.
1: I'd say I'm like fair to middling. <laughs>
0: okay. Yeah
1: yeah I mean it depends on like it depends on who's asking because then I have to assess like what kind of boundaries I have with that person
0: yeah and how well much it's the public I... for our purposes so right
1: right so yeah I'm pretty good I'm I'm good good how are you? Do, you
0: do you remember that Connie Chung thing years ago where she was doing an interview I can't remember who it was she was interviewing and she sort of like leaned in and said just whisper your answer to me <laughs> and I just, you know, I always, sometimes I feel like that during these podcasts We're like, it seems like you're just having a chat and then you have to remember that it, it's public.
1: Yes. Uh, yes. Yeah, you uh, know what I like about being on your podcast is um, I, I was just saying this to a mutual friend of ours who I, I won't name cause I don't want to embarrass us. And uh, he was, we were, I was just like, you know, the best thing about chatting with Dave on the podcast is it's the only time in our friendship when I feel like I can just say what i feel about things like because i'm the guest without being interrupted or like steamrolled by you know the hectoring that typically occurs in our friendship
0: <laughs> and and vice versa i, I don't want to make it seem inequitable because the <laughs> hectoring is actually i would say the hectoring is disproportionately uh on the on the um other no side. one would
1: agree no one you no, know they wouldn't and that's that the now. that's
0: the genius of your trolling is that no one would would agree with that assessment because they can't see on the inside but and and that's what that's how you well that's that's what kept this relationship going for years which is so nice
1: I feel like your editor is going to have a hell of a time with this I think we were trying to lay gold but I don't know just leave that's what
0: that's okay that's what tapes for It's digital these days you can just keep going it it goes on forever you don't it's there isn't even any tape anymore. i uh, even
1: trying to have your words with gaps in between them. I, yeah. um, you know, I was thinking about, cause you know, we've talked about a few times in this quadrilogy um, is like, you know, how we're feeling public feelings, what the headlines are saying, are we in this together or apart, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And so I was, um, I was thinking about anxiety these days because I have a student, um doing awesome work on, eco-anxiety and I have been doing work on public anxiety for the last decade and I found myself meandering into health science psychology type literatures on disaster psychology and you know the psychologists they like to talk in terms of models and you do this too you political theorists do this too um and I found it actually kind of useful because I was thinking about like, what, how would I answer the question? Like, how am I? Things still feel like really sick and I'm not sure how to articulate that, but looking at the, this, like this model of um, disasters, I was thinking, okay, COVID-19, the pandemic did represent this disaster. Um, there was an impact phase, you know, and then there was this sort of, I think they, it's referred to as like a heroic phase that would be like collecting PPE and like dropping mm-hmm. off food to our sick neighbors or whatever. And then there's like a honeymoon phase of kind of like a sense of collectivity. I think we recorded Very during awesome one of those phases, right? Right? Like it, I mean, we've, we've come a long way in our understanding that the pandemic was not experienced equally or felt equally, et cetera. But um, then there's this sort of um, long phase of feeling sort of disillusioned, like the disillusionment. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, that totally captures what many of us have felt. Yeah, yeah, like the kind of like, oh, okay. Yeah, we felt some social solidarity, but like now the reality is setting in that, you know, our institutions didn't really have our back and like we still have to go to school and work and be productive. And, and then that kind of gives way to what I've kind of described in the last year as like crawling out of that phase and um, touching down kind of like onto the metaphor in this model, which I thought was hilarious because I'm a Vancouverite, was the the sandbar phase. And um, I was thinking about the sandbar. I was like, okay, this is this like happy hour crab dip. This but, is sorry but...
0: for those who, who don't live in Vancouver. I know that for a lot of people, guests who come on from Vancouver, um, they assume everybody lives there. Ditto Toronto. <laughs> but for those who are not from Vancouver, can you explain to us what that is?
1: It's a, a one of four restaurants in the Sequoia Company of restaurants that serves like you know walk squid and, and hazy IPA. Yeah. And so, so I was reading yeah. this thinking like, okay, this is an apt metaphor. I feel as though I might be touching down from this phase of treading water and feeling like really disillusioned like mentally and physically, all the rest of it. And, and like, you know, feeling the sand underneath me, I'm like coming up here I'm, I'm getting a little bit of rest. And also this is the phase where in like the psychological literature, we start to recuperate things that have been lost, like about our daily routines that allow us to be open to learning, creativity, the, the the self-actualizing stuff, not just the meet basic survival needs stuff. And I was like, okay, this is a fun metaphor, except for the fact that COVID will not go away. We don't have the end. And so what I've been feeling is this like, okay, like I'm not treading water anymore. My feet have touched down but I'm not on the beach. Like I still feel like I'm in the water. I'm not feeling like, and then like people are chippy, people are still chippy and like not doing well and like not relational. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so we're, I think because like this, this disaster didn't just start and end, this is, we're not sure when the pandemic gives way to the next phase of itself. And so it's hard to actually feel relieved and think like, okay, I'm on to the next creative, I'm recovering. Um, but there, there are glimmers of that, and and you know, I'm like waking up early in the morning again, and like moving my body, and things that, things that really, there was a lot of stop and start around just those little things um, that make for a meaningful life in the last two two and a half years.
0: It it feels a little as if we're at the the George W. Bush unfurling the mission accomplished banner <laughs> on the aircraft carrier phase of the pandemic, where it's plainly not over but we've just unfurled a banner that says mission accomplished. And we're like, it's over. Except for all the people screaming, uh, not for uh, disabled folks, not for people who are immunocompromised, not for people who are still caring for folks, not for people who are going broke. It's it's not over for lots and lots and lots of people. And it's over more or less for different groups. Uh, And it's going to, the bounce is going to be significant because it's going to cause us a lot of long-term problems going forward. But we've decided it's over. I was out today. You know, just after in Ontario, the mask mandates have been lifted pretty much everywhere. And mask wearing has just plummeted. It's just, that's it. People have decided it's over. The signals they're getting from government and from business leaders and so on is that it's over. And, And so for now it's over. And so, I mean, this episode is about how we move forward when it does end, not presupposing that it's over. And what's funny is that we've opened this, I think, in a perfect way, which is saying, Oh, we don't know if this is over or when it's going to be over, even though you know, we're just stuck in this limbo. Let's say we've got to start thinking about what we do when we move forward, as we have been in some ways. It's going to end more or less at some point, right? The COVID will become endemic, whatever. That's going to be significant. We're going to deal with that, but we're going to be talking about a sort of post-pandemic world, whatever that means. Uh, I want to start with institutionally what you think that ought to look like now that we've hit this critical juncture where we can perhaps talk about doing things differently.
1: Yeah. So, so part of, part of what, what, where I'm struggling with, like not calling this post pandemic is like, if, if you've got an equity lens and the way you do, you know, the way you just mentioned, like all the folks who are still struggling, grieving, you know, the loss of relatives pandemic related or not, you know, just Um, people in various states of personal disaster related to the pandemic, the events have been so chronic, right? And like staggered and then repeated and this like end remains unknown. But certainly the messages from public health, like in Ontario, but I think like, you know, in, in many places around the world are that we're coming to a close. In my life, because I've been on the caregiving side of the pandemic experience, it really has felt over because now I just get an email notification that my kid was exposed to COVID in the same breath that, so last, yeah, last week I got three email notifications for the same child. I just put a swear word in front of the child, but it's not the child's fault, <laughs> but I got a hand, foot, mouth exposure, a COVID exposure, and a chicken pox exposure, different emails, oh, same, week, same child, but I didn't, it didn't faze me because I was like, oh yeah, this is back to normal now. Because it didn't mean that just because there were these three exposure events, I was going to change my behavior whatsoever. And, it, and that is privilege, right? Like, I'm, I'm um, not thinking about severely immunocompromised relatives or my own children, you know, encountering these kinds of viruses the way families with different abilities always have to do. But certainly, like, and I still do have a child who's unvaccinated. Certainly that daily life has signaled to me that it's over. Um, For for better or for worse. And so it has its impact has certainly lessened in, I think, our in our daily lives. And we might get sick and get very sick, um, but our responses aren't um, expected to change to those kinds of notifications. And that's just huge in terms of my labor, stress. Yeah, the emotional capacity or the lack thereof that um, I struggled with as a parent of young unvaccinated kids throughout the pandemic.
0: Mm -hmm. So I mean, one of the changes is that we may start to assess risk differently.
1: I wonder, like, I wonder if we're going to be like, "Hey, guess what, guys? Everyone's dying in car accidents." Like, are we finally going to get there? No, Uh, or toxic drug supply or whatever. You know, I I, I, no, we're we're
0: we're quite bad at we're we're quite bad at uh, at assessing these these causes, right? You know, we talk about uh, these risks, and yet. Uh, you know, when you really drill down, I, I want to like, let's let's look at this very really briefly with with the lens of the of the drug poisoning crisis. Mm-hmm. I advocate for uh, drug decriminalization with an eye towards legalization, safe supply, mm-hmm. uh, safe consumption sites, and people say say, well, you know uh, this is a real threat to the community and et cetera et cetera, et cetera. And drugs are dangerous. Like, well, they're dangerous because we don't we make them more dangerous than they need to be. We don't seem to worry so much about things like alcohol, tobacco, or cheeseburgers. Right. But how many people do cheeseburgers kill? An awful lot.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean...
0: Both directly and indirectly, right? You know, indirectly through the the effect that the consumption of beef has on the planet, directly through the, the, the effect that beef has on the body we know about alcohol, we know about tobacco, we know about cars, but you know, we don't do moral panic around these things. Not really.
1: Uh, it's, I'm glad you brought stuff. that up. Like I, it, the, because I'm thinking about, you know, okay. Institutions slow to change, but if we're like part of this build back better agenda, what can we daydream about that goes beyond how to tweak our legislative landscape or, you know, pass minor policy changes. Like we we've, we've been, Given this opportunity, I think, to think about how as humans we move through our busy lives thinking the future is going to impress itself upon us, you know, and um, we saw a lot of our institutions pivot a little bit Mm -hmm. um, in, in the face of this disaster. And I, I mean, I'm not, I mean, I'm cynical. So like, I, <laughs> I like to see headlines like work has changed forever. Um, although I don't believe it. I, I, I want to ask the question, okay, like for whom has work changed and mm-hmm. what are the conditions? You show me the conditions of work that have changed. And the real question that I have now is about our capacity to daydream when we've been so conditioned to think about ourselves as performance outcome, result-driven bots. Like I, I I, was just listening to this podcast by um, someone, I, I will not name them because I might insult the podcast in a second. Um, they were European they were talking about, you know, like, why don't we work less? I was like, yes, can we just like work less? Can this just become a thing that we don't have to like make a big deal of? Like everybody knows we all wanna work less. And I thought that they were gonna say something like, and in, instead of focusing on hours at work or like working five days a week or six days a week, think about, I thought they were going to say like the meaning of life or purpose or spending time with their family. And instead they were like outcome driven uh, work and performance-based metrics. (laughs) Can we think a little bigger? Can we, can we like think a little bit more about planetary flourishing in a way that actually inspires people? (laughs) I don't really want to pivot from working 40 hours a week or 40 plus to thinking about how I can still be as productive in four days. Like, uh, Uh this is where we're at though. This is, this is a hundred years into this conversation. This is where we're at. And so I'm, I'm like into the radical imagination stuff. Now I'll get to the institutional stuff, but like, can we, can we have a moment of daydream? Can we teach ourselves in times of uncertainty to have this like prefigurative kind of activity around, um, being radical. I'm just so bored of this. I'm so bored of how we talk about work and, like, you know, what we're trying to do here on this planet.
0: Uh, you know, I want to stay on this because when I was thinking of this episode, uh, I was thinking about institutional changes, legislative changes, uh, you know, adopting policies that we already broadly talk about and think about. But this imagination point is, I think, important. Uh, because i think we're stunted in a significant way that there are just things that we can't even conceive of, as you mentioned, like we go right to productivity as the measure rather than like, why don't we just work less? <laughs> and, and there's this underlying assumption that, well, you can't possibly question the logic of productivity and consumption because, you know, if you do that, then all of our lives get worse because if we're not producing things and consuming things, then the economy's not growing. If the economy's not growing, then we don't get more wealthy. If we don't get more wealthy, we can't spend all this time. Are producing things that we then consume what's the point of your life i mean if the goal is well we gotta get wealthier you know my question is like to what end it's yeah. it's making us all miserable i mean we're we're not happy uh <laughs> doing this it's a terrible how cycle how are you
1: doing is like not that important it really isn't i i I'm trying to feel optimistic about um, like young adults who are actually expressing these sentiments that are like, no, I don't want to work. Like work sucks. You guys ruined it. Um, And I I, like really pin a lot of my hopes in um, that way of thinking. And it kind of like, my hope is that like this kind of infects a a generational shift. Um, But I was just talking to my grandmother. I had this wonderful little micro vacation in the Kootenays this weekend, taking my grandmother up to our family cabin and I said something about the four day work week. She said, Oh, like my friend heard you on the radio. Um, and she said, you, you think we should work less? And I was like, yeah. Um, she was like, well, how would we get everything done? You know, some things need to get done. And then the, the next thing she said was, I mean, surely you could do what you do in four days. <laughs> I was like, wow. Like I didn't, for us, like I, said, I didn't know what either of those things meant, but I did take them to mean that there's like a failure of imagination you know like there's a some things need to get done like what does that even mean and but that but we see that sentiment echoed in you know scholarship on workplaces and organizations in the white papers of these big you know four-day work week pot like pilots It, it really um makes me think that the work that is going to drive us is that I mean, honestly, the humanities and like social science approaches to thinking about I don't know culture and um and and just living well together that's not going to come from uh, the this kind of uh, focus on on the conditions of work. I don't know I'm maybe I, I feel like I, I feel like I'm I just like had an edible, but I promise I didn't. Um, I've got yeah, this lot I don't <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I, I've I got don't. this. Made- or new. Can... Pro- I mean, maybe I should have it. That might actually be like make me more visionary. But I've got this new project where I've been doing focus groups with young people. I called it the Imagine Kin Project, and they talk about how they imagine their future relations. And that's sort of the lens. But we do these kinds of like collective daydreaming activities, where it's like, where are you in five years? Where are you in ten years? What are you doing? Who's there? And for some, the, the findings have been a little bit surprising to me. For some they simply cannot engage in this activity. It feels overwhelming and it feels and they go right to, you know, their immediate needs are not met in the present. And so it's really difficult to say like, yeah, I live in this kind of place because, you know, they're housing insecure in the, in the present. But a couple of them articulated like, you know, I don't know where I am, but I like I step off my front porch and I feel the grass under my feet. and Like someone else was like, I'm on a ranch of a dozen golden retrievers and there's these like unintelligent yellow dogs running around. And I, yeah, I think that this um, kind of brave exercise is needed in order to then have people drill down and say, how do we, how do we reform our institutions? What mm-hmm. do we wanna recuperate? What is clearly inequitable and not working well? Policy still matters. I'm horrified by Roe v. Wade. You know, there are real things that we can do, but um, we're, we're, we're limited in our scope in terms of our daydreaming.
0: I mean, that's such a good point. And, and again, I, I think it's because we truly have been socialized to believe a very particular narrative about liberalism, about capitalism, and what a, what a life looks like. Uh, and, and what we owe each other, and it seems to be, well, we owe each other our productivity, so that we can all consume more. And I go back to the point: is I, I mean, I challenge myself on this all the time, and I would challenge others on it too. I mean, what makes you happy? What What do you think makes you happy? What actually makes you happy? Uh, because I know for a fact that the the silliest little things uh, make me happy, and they have very little to do with productivity, um, you know, it's all, or, yeah. or, or, or consumption. It's more just sort of like sitting around with with friends. Uh, you know, goofing off, wasting your time, doing kind of nothing at all. Um, yeah, some of that, of course, is bound up in the production of certain goods and services. I'm not saying that you know we don't need goods and services. I happen to love spending my time.
1: That you're going to you know, say spending money? I was going to be like, yep. <laughs> uh,
0: well, I mean, in part because um, you, you know we're conditioned to do it, but but I mean, again, imagine. Let, let's do this. Imagine we say, okay, well, we've decided after COVID that work sucks, and we we're just not going to take it anymore. We're all going to reduce what we do, and we're actually going to say that we want to actually consume less and produce less because we just don't think this is a good way to live. And by the way, it's terrible for the planet. Mm-hmm. Uh, what follows from that, um, both in terms of of what life looks like, but also in terms of what the policy looks like, is it you this know is it Clara? UBI? Is a right. uh, uh, you know four day work weeks for those who can do it. Of course, that's not everybody. Uh, what what where do we cash that out?
1: I'm not sure if it's if it's not everybody. Like we when we think about four day work weeks in companies and countries that um, have already done this, right? That are already doing this. It's typically those kind of like white collar jobs or tech or like all online retailers where they can cut some Zoom meetings and mm-hmm. and time and you know work 32 hours and then you think about the ones who can't and that might be frontline workers right like places that need to remain open businesses but we can get creative around low wage jobs and like the folks who are most time poor if we think about refunneling like channeling some of the economic benefits of reducing the work week into subsidizing those industries like we we've seen we've done it before historically like in countless industries Um, and so I think like you know retail or like small business like they're they're just we could just think creatively about how to make that labor cost equation work with people working 32 hours a week increasing their wage and um, and making some costs for businesses um, reduced but because we, we save so much money when people don't go to work, you know, like, and, and we save like energy and resources, like plastic water bottles, but also commuting exhaust and, you know, all the, all the money that I don't really understand how this is calculated, uh, all the money that's saved when traffic congestion goes down, like economic, I don't, I don't understand. We scale up to the level of the economy, how congestion causes us costs us so much money, but it does. Mm -hmm. That's why like, I think like policies like, Uh, say a four-day work week labor policies and regulation can have really profound effects on culture and value systems and Mm -hmm. the way we live and like the example that I was giving to Stephen Quinn the other day is like you know if I had suddenly if I had Wednesday off nothing to do I would first of all I'd go give blood because I have had a blood wreck on my Desk at home for a while. That <laughs> my doctor probably needs some information. And I was so I do that, you know, and so I do like we could schedule some appointments, we could do some of the like life admin stuff, but I would also walk to commercial drive and go to a thrift store and buy a pair of used shorts. And because I need shorts. And if I don't have that time in three days, I am going to order some online from a fast fashion outlet. And I think you know where I'm going with this, like the ripple mm-hmm. effects of that time poverty are so huge. Like if we, yeah. if we were slowing down, if, if getting to the sandbar of this point in the pandemic means like we're, the water, the, the currents have slowed. The implications for cultural shifts around how we spend our time, particularly in North America, like Europe is way ahead of us here on leisure and, 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 and pace. That they're huge. So I I guess I shouldn't just like throw policy out of the out of the equation, because I do think about those act like those really practical, like material changes that can be made that can have these ripple effects. My concern is that without the right kind of question, we are bound to only benefit the status quo who are typically benefiting from these kinds of advances in how we think about work or or leisure and so we will leave behind as we always do frontline workers you know the folks who are precariously employed gig workers like this needs to be front and center so it does mean thinking about in provincial canada our legislative you know landscape around say gig work overtime mm-hmm.
0: It's, it's fascinating because as you were mentioning how we spend our time when we don't have very much of it we go to amazon do you know how we spend our money when we don't have very much of it well the default is well i have to go to walmart i have to go to yes. amazon i have to go to these places where things are cheap despite the fact that they're tearing communities apart and actually you know depressing wages so that we actually don't have money to spend more um and that we're bound up in this cycle but we sort of look around and say well what the hell do you expect me to do uh, this is part yeah, of the reason I blame you know, systems, not individuals, right? Like if you right. have no time and no money, how do you look at someone and say, how dare you shop at Walmart? You're part of the problem. It's like, well, wow, the person, you've got no time and no money. What are you going to do? Right. And we're all bound up in this. There's, there's nowhere to hide. There's no one who isn't, um, who isn't culpable. I think a little bit of, of the good place, which I, uh, I think as a show got this exactly right. And this is a spoiler alert. So I'm giving everybody <laughs> 10 seconds to mute um, even though it's been out for a long time, but you know, the joke of the good place is that turns out nobody can get into the good place because everything that you do in a the contemporary world is so bound up with bad that you simply can't garner the points you need to qualify through the good for the good place. So oh. everybody goes to hell. Everybody oh goes God. to the bad place. <laughs> so, don't worry, they they sort of fix it. but sort of but the the joke is that okay, like right, there there is nowhere to hide in the contemporary world where you aren't culpable in some sort of bad because it's become so unbelievably complex. Um,
1: right. Here and that's we like, are. Yes, How do you start to walk
0: like, that back? without, without And I'm, I'm assuming we're not talking about kind of like a kind of um, turn to, to Luddite uh, politics or to sort of disavow modernity and so on and so forth. The line I use is that our problem as it's made out by by governments in the market is the distribution of of scarcity when in reality it's the our problem is the distribution of abundance right it's right. not
1: Just scarcity it's abundance employers. yeah know so one of the, the things that i face the most as a teacher in this climate with college students who are like many of whom are college age you know that 18 to 24 um who who really suffered uh, in the pandemic, because they're really their social needs um, and emotional needs were really, I think, cut off more than many other ages. They are suffering with the cognitive dissonance of like behaving in ways that they need to because they are financially restricted and the and like a value system that's really um, beautiful around around land and, and, um, and climate and like more than human ways of thinking about planetary justice, interspecies relationships. And I've seen this increase like this, this was not as, um, front and center in conversations about capitalism and work and like living, living a good life. um, when I started teaching a decade ago. And so these students are like, they, they, it, it pains them that they, that they, they can't, um, get out of, they can't get to the good place, you know, even though they, they are, they're so ambitious uh, and and they're ambitious around the right things. Like they're ambitious around working less, spending more time in community. Um, the, you know, these, these like really remarkable, um, social aims of like living well together. And I, and I just, it, it breaks my heart that I, I don't want to push them into this sort of, um, um, this kind of relativism like I don't want to um but I do say you know I think too much about this on an individual scale um we'll we'll just um, burn out and be be totally apathetic but also if we think about the fact that if I got on a plane right now and flew for the rest of my life and it wouldn't make a damn difference <laughs> um in, in terms of like climate uh that's that's too depressing. So how do we move forward? How do we like think in terms of Um, the fact that we're already doing the work of our utopian vision by having this conversation, making meals with each other, um, you know, reaching out to one another, daring to tell each other that we love each other. We're already doing this work, right? Like we're already living the future we want. And so how can we channel that energy and cope with disaster, chronic, staggered, repeated, disparate, disasters um, um, globally that's that's sort of where I think I'm at in my my goal as a teacher like how do we cope with this and also that's what I'm hearing from students is like the need to heal and cope as we think about what we can do to live well in terms of policy
0: Do you think that there's going to be an opening uh, in consideration for our imagination and new policy? Do you? I mean, do you think there's a moment where we might say, "Okay, this isn't working. We need to address things like, you know, physical health, mental health, uh, you know, state support for people, work hours, all these sorts of things." Or do you think we're going to eventually say, "Well," uh, it's easier to just sort of keep doing what we do, but but have some means-tested programs <laughs> here and there because what else are you gonna do? Because I don't really see anybody in the political space out there doing the maybe imaginative the work. Um, yeah, I don't see maybe- anybody agitating for those big change. I, I mean, I'm, you know, there are there are folks out there in, in social movements, uh, activist communities, and so on, doing this work. I'm I'm trying to f- see where that cashes out. At the policy level, and whether it does. Now, you, I mean, I, someone could make the argument. Well, it doesn't need to. I would. I think it does need to. And I'm curious if we're going to see that. I and, and am where we thinking
1: about it. the Canadian government right now. Surprisingly, I think I'm shocking you. Um, well, I thought there's uh, foresight organizations cropping out in, gov- uh, cropping up in government, um, and I think where we see this is in countries that are actually, you mm-hmm. know, materially quickly being threatened um, by climate policy oil wealthy countries in northern Europe, those kinds of welfare states, but also in South America. I think like Spain has a strong foresight arm of government. We have a foresight organization in Canada. I'm curious about how they are going to move um, these sort of like futurist orientations to our communities living well together when they are, um, you know, apolitical. Because certainly articulating demographic changes and how we might think about like housing and how families should live together is all about values whether we think it's evidence-based or not right it's it's um it's really politicized but they Mm -hmm. the foresight organization in canada just had their futures week conference in the last two weeks on issues like um you know reproductive justice uh demographic shifts um you know our, our use of fossil fuels and so I I suspect that this is not limited to the social movement space, um, but that the political um, is not is going to move last. It will only move when when culture has moved and said we support this. So now you can dare have the political will around these kinds of things. But it does uh, make me feel a little bit optimistic that. I mean, we know that we need to be thinking about these things. Um, and so there are examples of how this might become enshrined, like in, in, in the work of government research. That That's cool to me. We're behind, by the way. Canada's behind. <laughs>
0: that sounds about right. I think that's the national motto. I, yeah, I... Yes. I, I think when I think of philosophers, people should read... And there aren't many, I think most can be, can be forgotten for most, certainly for most people. Uh, Gramsci stands out as one to, to go back to. I, there's a handful, Arendt is one, Gramsci is one, mm-hmm. Adorno and Horkheimer are a couple. Um, you know, Gramsci had this sense that, uh, the, that intellectual space needs to be conquered and, and dominate so much of what seems possible in our world. And if you can't own it, then, then you're probably uh, going to find it difficult to, to make political changes and material changes are certainly more difficult, uh, which I think is true in this case, right? It was, you know, that that space has to be opened up, as you mentioned, I mean, that agenda has to be set in a very particular way, but it's a big change we're talking about here. We're talking about thinking differently than we've been thinking about production and mm-hmm. consumption for, you know, a couple hundred years, pretty much mm-hmm. since the intersection of liberalism and capitalism, uh, you know, around the, well, going back quite a while, but certainly in the 18, 19, 20, 20th, 21st century, and uh, I mean, if for someone sitting here listening, thinking, "Okay, well, how do you? What's the next thing I do?" <laughs> you know, I listen to this, and you know, it sounds like they're having a good time. Uh, I can hear some faint knocking in the background as uh, as the crew continues to work a day's. But speaking of, I feel like I should go down there and, and say to them, guys, you can, it's it's 6:47 p.m. on a Monday. My look. Um, Uh, but like, what's the next step?
1: I feel like we have this impetus to put into practice to control. Right. And, and I I get it. And I am somebody who likes control in various ways, but I, I am trying to kind of seed this control to um, the more like um, abstract thinking about, ideology and like whether or not these things can shift, especially because uh, I really did feel like a total loss, loss of control in the pandemic. And that's what killed me. And so it's a kind of like it's it's work. But, but I think um, the first step, I think, for me and what I would suggest to students as well is thinking about healing from collective and personal trauma, because I think part of what we are only at the cusp of understanding and i'm you know I have a background in like feminist and gender studies and so i see this through the lens of how capitalism has like shaped the family and how the male breadwinner model has shaped like patriarchal relationships ways of relating and how that has shaped workplace organizations and they've they've mutually constituted one another despite women's like flooding into the workforce. And so I, w- what I, I think about is like how much trauma we all live with as a result of this conditioning and how if we are uh, and until we work on that, and this sounds maybe like a bit, I don't know, I don't know how this might sound. this sounds maybe like unintellectual, but like until we are all in therapy for or whatever our healing journey is for um, you know the ways in which we've we've internalized, capitalist modes of success, right? These models, we will not be able to make the right decision on policy. I'd like really see it that clearly. And even like in my own, like when you asked how I was, I was like, oh, is it Dave or is it podcast Dave? Like, is this public? (laughs) In my own relationship, my own marriage, we've been thinking about like, okay, we have great relationship. How can we, but like, you know, the pandemic hurt um, families and relationships so much as we had to like struggle through this together how can we still actually um, improve our intimacy in a way that is not influenced by a patriarchal kind of expectation around like dominance and submission and all that kind of thing. So I I actually like draw a really clear line between our healing as individuals from these traumas, intergenerational and COVID related and capitalism related, right through to how we can design, say, a four day work week or a policy for improved access to reproductive autonomy, um, or, you know, like land back um, initiatives and and land transfer and reparations. We, we have so much unlearning to do.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I, we absolutely do. And and again, I think it does come down to one fundamental point that I think we all need to internalize. And it's that you've been taught implicitly, at least, that your purpose in being is to produce value for shareholders. <laughs> That's your job. It's not to connect with your community. It's not to serve your 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 family and your God. It is to make sure that shareholders value from uh, are consistently you, you, wealthy you and the dividends keep returning. Yeah, it is fun, like Marx was right. I mean, whatever you whatever people think about uh, about Marx, he was fundamentally correct about that one point is that we have, have fundamentally become units of production and that production is used to extract value and that value is used to enrich um, capitalists who then repeat the cycle and destroy the plant in the process and that's what we're meant to do. And, and I think the, your point about unlearning is so important because we have to sort of say like, no, no, we need to go fundamentally to the question of why are you here? What is your purpose? What do you want to do with the years you have, the indeterminate years you have in this earth? What is it that you want to do? Uh, you're going to be constrained immediately by all kinds of things. But i like to go back to your your original point at the at the outset of the episode. Imagine what a different would look like. What would that be? And then how can you work towards that both individually in your life day to day and structurally so that we can all do it? For me, it would be, you know, doing work I enjoy or mm-hmm. can at least tolerate to the extent that I have to, and then spending time with, with people yeah, well, Mark's like sitting
1: also around shooting the shit. Said a lot about how work is important, right? Like it's not that. It's not that, like, if, you know, without work, there is no leisure. Yeah. And um, what what I've found, um, like, I, I, yeah. I, I completely agree. What I what I have found challenging in my own kind of, like, unlearning journey is, like, as someone who has played by the rules and who, for whom, like, doors have opened because I've learned the rules, you know, especially, like, academic ones show up on time. Like, everything from, like, truancy, the, mor- the morality of showing up on time to heading in your assignments on time, you know it's been tough for me as a teacher to truly unfold all of the ways in which I run a capitalist classroom. <laughs> and, and like my expectations of students are so, and you know, my, my opinions of them, my, my biases are so, this is, this is a lifetime of, of unlearning. I, I feel like every um, day, like every lecture I, I, Need to pay attention to those knee-jerk reactions that I'm having around student behavior because they signal to me the ways in which I'm so conditioned in this way. Like I know we've gotten like really abstract, but mm-hmm. I just, I just think um, this is a really feminist kind of point. Like we've it reminds me of 500 years of women being like, "Hello, the public and private like that's not a that's not a nice divide. That, that's not how things work." you know, we're emotional beings. We don't, we don't leave the affective to the, to the home and, and go do the productive uh, outside the home. This is, this is like sexual theory went through the last hundred years too, like really in, from the fifties, but um, we're still, we're still thinking this way. The, the fact that we are such emotional beings should be, <laughs> the impetus to change policy and structure. Like, so we need to understand ourselves as not thinkers, but actually feelers. I sound like Brene Brown now, but I'm not, I, I don't, I don't mean to, I mean. It's great. It's great. It's great. It's great.
0: A lot of people like Brene Brown. Uh, that's not necessarily, about, I think more, more academic sure, policy sure, folks sure. probably I'll sound like Brene Brown, I think. It's compelling for the exact reason that you raised earlier yeah. because we're we're effective right <laughs> you know it's funny because we say that we're like all oh, right we need to be more effective it's so like oh no I'm but i feel like
1: it's the like, dude in works. you will be like okay so what's step one to that <laughs> and 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 like fair enough um yes read a book, true. you know watch some renee brown that, that that'd be my recommendation yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then read the stuff about the four-day work week or whatever yeah
0: Well, I, I think yeah. I mean, it is. Uh, it's funny because we are primed to be in this industry, certainly. Mm-hmm. You know, sort of solutions oriented, right? Because it's like that's that's how we. That's what we're made to be. Um, but but you're right. I mean, there's sometimes you just have to kind of let your brain work. Goes you know go where it goes. Uh, I want to close out on, uh, on on returning to sort of of what launched the initial conversation is. Uh, because we're just approaching time. The time flies by. I
1: don't know about for listeners on this sometimes.
0: one. Well, no, it's, it's human and it's real. But what about your own life? What's going to look different in the aftermath of the pandemic? Or the or for that matter, the ongoing uh, reality of the pandemic in your own life? Has, has anything shifted I personally for you?
1: I feel like my role as a parent and like as a mother in particular and the age you know I, I was in my mid-30s through the pandemic you know with young kids i think that that um really that's that's important context for understanding what i'm taking out of the pandemic you know like where where i'm at where i'm at at this stage and and that is i i have clarity on some things um that I don't know if I would have had clarity on for another decade and I sure am grateful to be thinking about um standing in my power around how I want to raise my kids uh just becoming more confident like I you know people talk about the 40s as the greatest decade I feel like I got a little accelerated by by experiencing this kind of disillusionment um so significantly and like with people around me I'm um, so I guess, I guess that's a little vague but I am a more confident parent and, um, and a more confident teacher. And you know what I'm realizing that I'm doing that I didn't know I would ever do is I'm thinking about higher education, uh, differently. I'm, I'm way more open to the, the notion that it's changing so rapidly before I was sort of like, okay, like if I'm going to teach, I want to shape the world. I was really nervous about, austerity measures in universities, like there's a there's a there are a lot of reasons to be really worried about the state of higher education right now. And that was certainly my perspective before the Mm -hmm. pandemic. During the pandemic, it got even worse. I felt like it like like our institution was kind of sliding out from under us. But I have really changed my thinking around the potential for dismantling, you know, what can be generated if we actually listen to what students are saying they need in order to learn as adults. I don't want to become cynical and think about this like business model, transactional relationship between professor and student that feels like we're running a kind of a company. I actually wanna see students where they're at as full humans who are emotional and who are saying, I work too much, I can't do this. I can't do your liberal arts model that you think mm-hmm. is the best for me. I get it, I can't do it. And I'm, I'm feeling just less cynical about that and more optimistic and more creative about what I can do to shape students' learning, um, even if I'm getting swept up in this sort of like marketized um, university experience. Okay. <laughs> I wanna keep going, can but we have to I do.
0: I mean, that's, that's all I got. I've got nothing fancier for an outro than that. I want to keep going, but I have to leave it there. I think that's going to be the name of, I want that on my tombstone, actually, when I die. Hear that? Please, someone, please someone make that happen. I want to keep going, but I have to leave it there.
1: I, want I don't think that's going to be the top, line, be the top line of your tombstone, but we can also talk about that another time. That'll be the fifth episode.
0: Well, that'll be the quintilogy <laughs> episode by far the worst diehard but maybe the best of our conversations they've all been good this one was good the last three were great uh the next one will be the best yet i'm just convinced when hasn't the I don't fifth know, season five of the
1: west wing the is that when they got a new writer right?
0: okay tbd i don't know <laughs> all right well, we'll talk about that next time well that brings us To time and then some Uh, my first thank you is to you uh, friend Amanda Watson who joined me today for this um, public private personal rambling shared chat about our collective and individual futures, which I think uh, will, will leave people thinking for.
1: Thank you very for much for having much me. Really, like, really, so always you. a pleasure, and I'm really happy to exercise this this part of my brain because it's really important that we keep it at the front, and I need to remind myself every day. So, thank you very much for having me and just letting that conversation flow.
0: My pleasure. Uh, keep the imagination alive, and um, keep it um, keep it anti uh, market and anti imperial to the extent that you possibly can. A bitter world as possible. And uh, thanks to Carolyn Smith, to Ross Clark and to Aisha Jara, who make the show not just possible, but better than it would be without them. And a note that we've got a couple more fun episodes coming up through the summer. We're going to try to be uh, a little more lighthearted for a couple of months before we get back to the, the usual bit in the fall, which will be decidedly less lighthearted, uh, but it's our way of taking a little break without going off the air. So that'll be that. It's something to look forward to for the, for the rest of the summer. And of course, my final thanks is to each and every one of you who listens, and we'll see you back here in a couple of weeks.